BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. To the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 250. What's a musical experience that you just felt like you figured out life? You know the point of life. That is the voice of Berkeley psychologist Dacher Keltner, one of the world's leading experts on the science of emotion. And let me ask you that same question he just asked me. And please feel free to pause the show and really try to answer it. What is a song that you remember stopped you, took you by surprise, and didn't generate that stank face when something really slaps, but made the world disappear for a while? A song that brought tears to your eyes or that made you sit down or filled you with a sense of mystery that you were connecting to something bigger than yourself a piece of music that made you feel like you were part of something that you were a member of something some music that made you feel like you understood the human condition just a little bit better for a moment It's a fun question. Please ask it the next time you're around other people as well and see what they say and then share the responses back and forth so you can, I don't know, make sense of things a little bit. This is awe, A-W-E, awe. And that's one of the questions that Keltner likes to ask in his research. And in his new book, he outlines his years of work in this field and a lot more. That book is titled Awe, The New Science of Everyday Wonder and How It Can Transform Your Life. Awe is an experience that can change lives, set you down a new path, commit you to a career or a relationship. A whole life can be built on a moment of true awe. It is that sense you get in the presence of a mountain or a symphony or a tragedy or triumph or a scientific discovery or pondering the size of a star or a microscopic organism. The feeling that there is something vast and mysterious and beyond your understanding that is so much larger than yourself or more complex than your day-to-day experience that it makes you feel like you're merely a moat of dust in the grand scheme of things. It's one of the most powerful human emotions, yet one of the least understood by psychology and neuroscience. In fact, the scientific study of human emotional states, what triggers them, how they affect our cognition and behavior, how they spread through our social networks, All of it is very new by comparison to, say, 
the study of comets or tree fogs, which can generate the feeling of awe. Even in the sciences that study the brain, body, mind, and culture, human emotions are one of the least explored areas. So just about all the research is recent. And though Darwin and Freud and Wilhelm Wundt all had plenty to say about human emotion, it was mostly conjecture. They were coming up with ideas for later scientists to explore. And the true empirical, quantified, and vetted, and done in academic departments devoted to such research experiments, research, really got going in the 1960s and 70s. And within that area of research, awe is one of the newest areas of interest. We have learned incredible things about the human psyche thanks to this 30-year-old science of emotion. You know, we've learned that our moral, moral judgments are, are driven, as John Haidt has shown, by passions like anger and disgust and rage. We've learned that politics is not a rational endeavor of cognition. It's, it's about rage and loneliness. When Pixar needed an expert, the expert on this topic, they hired psychologist Dacker Keltner to help them write the movie Inside Out. He is one of our leading experts on the biology an evolution of human emotion. And for nearly 20 years, he has turned his attention to awe, developing new methods for researching it and uncovering new findings. Like of all the human emotions, this is the one that most reduces inflammation and is one of the most cross-culturally identical, no matter the region, no matter the era. In other words, if you are a human being, you know what wow feels like. So let's pick his brain. My name is Dacker Keltner, and I'm a professor of psychology at UC Berkeley and then faculty director of the Greater Good Science Center. I have a book out called Awe. Because I spend a lot of time uh, doing the science of emotion, including awe. Um, I do a lot of teaching. I do a lot of work with healthcare individuals. I uh, love to work in prisons. Uh, and then, you know, in spare time, I do yoga and saunas and hiking and eating burritos and, and listening to some music. So that's what I'm up to. This is so California already. And I love yeah. that. But there's California and then there's Bay Area and then there's Berkeley. Like you, you yeah. can, there are concentric rings of, of where you can go with this. But there's got to be yeah. a reason why everybody... Whenever you find the others, because I grew up in the deep south, I grew up in Mississippi, and like there were certain portals to other ways of seeing the world. Terrence McKenna, Timothy Leary, uh, the uh, uh, Alan Watts, and so on. And then, yeah. if you ever meet an uh, expatriate from anywhere in the in the South or Midwest who found their way to some pocket of others, you can instead of talking about the weather, you can talk about some of those people. But yeah. those people all ended up in your area. What do you think's yeah. up with that? Why is that a thing that happened? Yeah, you know, it. I, I mean, Timothy Leary got his PhD at UC Berkeley in our Department of Psychology, which we sometimes were proud of and sometimes we hide. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Alan Watts landed down in Esalen and did a lot of his work in spreading ideas about Zen very close by in, uh, in uh, Big Sur. Um, yeah, I think that um, why is the Bay Area in particular in Los Angeles, you know, such a hotspot for countercultural thinking? And um, I mean, I think that it has a lot of deep origins. I think that people 
originally, you know, came to California uh, after the indigenous peoples, it should be noted, uh, in search of alternatives to East Coast living. Uh, I think that the gold rush brought a bunch of cultures into, uh, you know, uh, inter into interaction. We've always had a very diverse society here. Um, it's 40% Mexican-American, big Asian population in, in the area. And I think that that just makes it a hotspot. And then sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, late 60s. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, frankly, I, I'm going to sing Berkeley's praises here. We had a movement in 1964 when the United States was very conservative uh, for sp free speech. And the college students, Mario Savio and others, championed free speech. That then mixed in with the Black Panthers down in Oakland, California, the um, civil rights protesters uh, from the South coming to Berkeley. That gave rise to the anti-war protests. Uh, you know, but here, Michigan, then Columbia. So there, there is something about this place, um, that gets people to be anti-authoritarian yeah. and, and self-expressive, you know, so. That's amazing. I love all the different, con the, all the confluence, like the yeah. Hollywood too, like Hollywood was yeah. esca escaping Edison. All, but look, let's go over here where the dude can't reach us. Uh, so like, uh, there's yeah, all these, you. there's all these ways that uh, people have found their way to California. They're like, all right, I'll deal with the strange uh, weather systems here because most of the time it's very nice outside. It makes sense your book comes out of here uh, and your work comes out of here. I, When I saw the, what the book was about, I was very eager to jump in there. This is something I, mm. I think about all the time. A lot of my personal writing is about this. A lot of my nice. attempts to make to write things for a general public are sneaky ways to get you to think more about topics like this. I want to begin by just talking about how you you study emotions, which is an aspect of psychology that uh, I, I don't know if many people are familiar with how much work has been done in there and how recent so much of it is. It is. Especially Paul Ekman. You you worked with Paul Ekman. That's a while. I That was the first time I'd ever been afraid of a scientist or whatever. <laughs> I, uh, I was in a room where he was floating around and I was terrified that he could just read, that he had a superpower and I yeah. had nothing I could ever hide from this man, which says more about me than him. But the, tell me a little bit about the study of emotions and how you got into that. Yeah, thanks, David. I mean, it's really important, you know, um, Darwin, 1872, writes this brilliant book, The Expression of Emotion in Man and Animals, charts the evolution, the expression of 53 different mental states or emotions. Um, and then... Psychological science ignores emotions. I think it, there was a gender bias, like, oh, those are not, you know, manly or whatever. There was a concern about measurement, like, how do we measure subjective things, you know, experiences, qualia, etc. Et um, there was a kind of an emphasis in the field on rationality and cognition. Uh, and we really didn't know much about emotions. And, and until, you know, there were these kind of influential studies uh, one was the split brain patient studies of the 60s and 70s for, wow, that right hemisphere seems to process a lot of information about emotion. And Ekman, you know, Ekman went, goes to New Guinea, documents five or six kind of universal emotions, anger, fear, sadness, disgust, surprise, um, and, uh, and anger. And, um, and, and the field really takes off. And we have learned incredible things about the human psyche thanks to this 30-year-old science of emotion you know we've learned that our moral moral judgments are are driven as john Haidt has shown by passions like anger and disgust and rage 
we've learned that politics is not a rational endeavor of cognition. It's it's about rage and loneliness. You know, we've uh, we've just made enormous progress thanks to this really new science and my place in it. You know, I worked with Ekman for two years. He taught me how to really code expressive behavior, faces and voices and touch and blushes and the like. And he gave me this idea of, and it's really the Darwinian idea that if you just have some measures, like the face and the voice, and a little bit of physiology, and you can go study emotion anywhere in the world, you know. And that blew my mind that I could study, you know, kids at summer camps joking around and laughing, or romantic partners, you know, licking their lips when they feel sexual <laughs> desire towards each other. <laughs> which is a finding you know or you know um or compassion you feel moved by someone's suffering or awe so ekman he i did a lot of work on the face and we have a lot of work you, your listeners should go visit alan cowan's website and see what he's up to it's incredible but he just gave me this broader spirit of discovery like just go study things you know and see what you find out i, was, I love the cross-cultural aspects of it too where you can yeah. go because you start to wonder about, you know, what is, you know, you're trying to get out of the weird thing and you're trying to find what, well, what is, yeah. what is universal about us as this species? Yeah. And then, you know, you find, well, every, every you know, cultures that, that agree, this face is, 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 uh, communicating this and there this sound just, uh, I saw one of your talks where you were like, what does this sound like? What, what does this sound mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> and, if, and, it, and I was like, I was imagining like a, a chimpanzee doing that or, an a, yeah. or, or a, uh, you know, a bonobo or a person. And like, we're all going to agree like what that is. But then, then like we go uh, to cultures that have no exposure to the West and, uh, and finding that, oh, I, they, there are things, there are certain, it's, it's, I was astonished to, to, to learn from your work that uh, it's not like 100% across the board. There no. thing, there's a degradation of uh, of agreement on that face means this, this sound means this, and so on, which is, I think that's incredibly compelling. And I and I am old enough to remember when the, that this would be, this seems like I can't believe psychologists would study this. Yeah. This seems outside of the scientific purview. Uh, as odd as that seems saying that now. Uh, I think that's awesome. It must feel really great to like go, yeah, I can write a book about this. The public is ready. Oh, you're talking about awe, uh, or or just studying like the an emotion as if it is can have any as if it can be quantified scientifically, you know. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, David. I mean, we are kind of a, a visually oriented species. We have a giant chunk of our brain that's oriented toward visual cognition, and the face attracted so much attention, you know, thanks to Ekman. But the voice is incredible, you know. Um, and when you start to look across mammalian species, and Darwin wrote about this. And there are incredible new studies of the vocalizations of horses and how they communicate. And the, the non-human primates, bats, have a rich language of, of vocalization. Of course, birds, and so do humans. And we did a lot of work, you know, and you go to remote parts of the world and you, you ask people, what does this sound mean? And if the sound is, whoa, right? And they're like, that's <laughs> all. And, and, or you go, ha, 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 you know, and they're like, oh, there's something funny going on. And what I love, what's interesting about this discovery-oriented approach to human emotion of Ekman and Darwin is, is, is it just says, like, go get data. And, and what we learned with the voice, and it sets the stage for studying new things, is awe, 
and amusement, their sounds are some of the most universal sounds, right, that we've documented. And it tells us, contrary to a lot of assumptions, laughter, humor, uh, awe, wonder are fundamental human emotions, as Rene Descartes, the philosopher, and others have argued. So that's why we go get data and do crazy studies. Yeah, yeah. That's my favorite part of psychology is quantifying philo philosophy or, or challenging it. Uh, the, I love anything that has a, a genealogy or a, or a lineage to it as far as an idea or an etymology to it. Uh, I want to get to get into that in a second with, with awe. I just want to lay one last foundational uh, plank for emotion. What I usually write about, talk about, and do podcasts about it is good as post hoc, a lot of post hoc stuff. So a very, as you were mentioning earlier, people have a very strong emotion, a very visceral reaction uh, to something, and then they try to come try to explain it and the introspection uh, illusion comes into play. And I've been writing about that for years and years and years. Uh, and then whether it's politics where you, you think that you're arguing something because on some sort of rational uh, fact-based uh, thing, uh, fact-based uh, uh, source of your uh, feelings on the matter. Uh, almost always you're walking backwards into that. And that's why I love the moral dumbfounding stuff from yeah. Jonathan Haidt. Yeah. Uh, it's true across the board. We're feeling animals that then rationalize more than we are anything else. And that being true, it's very, it's very funny that since we do walk backwards from the feeling into the rationalization <laughs> and then come up with a narrative that we suggest was where we were coming from all along, that scientifically, we would also do the same thing where we're like the feelings over the last thing that we were, that we're going into at least one of the last things. So I just think that's really that's neat. fascinating. Isn't that neat that it, so for people who are like, okay, I'm on board. Thanks for making me feel weird about that. Um, it's a great observation, by the way, David. I mean, oh, you thanks. Know, yeah. I mean the, the judgment and decision-making literature, how we make choices and preferences, Nobel prize winning Danny Kahneman, Amos Tversky. It was absolutely a statement about rationalization, but not feeling. And now we're starting to learn that like feelings matter when you choose a partner or a house or a politician. So it's a really interesting idea. I'd never thought about that. Cool. Which is wild because feelings, the feeling happens first. That's sort of, it's the, if we're trying to figure out the function of all of this or how this evolved is something the, I'll, I'll want to hand that over to you. Like, is the, like, what do we know or what do we think we know so far? What does the evidence suggest as to why aren't we all Spock data robot uh, organisms, why, why did, why would emotions even be something that a, a creature would evolve to deal with the, the outside world? Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a couple of consensual points and it's a critical question. Like, why do we have these emotions? Why not just rely on reason and calculations and computations and the like? Um, and the first is, uh, sort of what Jennifer Lerner and I called appraisal tendencies or, prioritization, which is, you know, we have to have uh, systems that guide cognition, guide thought, guide what we attend to, guide what we perceive in the world. Every social context has a variety of interpretations, and you need the, the deeper systems of, of meaning in your mind and your body to say, this is what you really care about right now. You're hungry, or and go look, find sources of food, or you're really sexually interested in somebody, and look for cues for possibility, or this is unfair, and you're about to get screwed, uh, direct all of your cognitive resources to that theme in life. And that really, you know, that's a, a, a theme that's emerged in John Haidt's work on moral morality and our work on judgment and decision making. 
that emotions prioritize the, the most important themes of life to attend to, right? Suffering, justice, you know, harm, love, courage. It gets us to attend, to make sense of the world in a way that benefits the individual. And then the second is just to, to animate action, right? To, you know, and this is an idea that traces back to Thomas Schelling and Robert Frank and so forth that, you know, we need emotions to stir the body to go do things, you know, and to show people we're going to do things. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get outraged in this negotiation if you don't give me what I want, you know, and you get what you want. <laughs> and that's a finding of Gerben Van Cleef. So, you know, you know, I think the the simple-minded way to say it is like, man, without emotions, what what would you do? How would you know what to do? And what would you look at? And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. And now we return to our program. By the way, everything we're talking about is something that that uh, excited me with awe, and is why I'm talking to you about it. Like the the split brain stuff you're talking about, the Gazaniga thing. I I I would run. Around, I was t- I told people about that for weeks when I first learned about it because I felt it's like incredible. This explains something. This just the, there is a bigger world than me, and I'm feeling that because of this. The whole left brain interpreter, yeah. all that. The, incredible. How being uh, in those studies, and I've. I've where people will like, uh, they'll show them like a photograph of a car wreck, a very terrible one with like mangled bodies, but they're only showing one hemisphere. And then they ask the other hemisphere, which can speak up for the body. Why do you, what are you feeling? I don't feel very good. Why are you feeling that? Well, this hemisphere has not seen the picture and it says, uh, I I ate, I ate eggs this morning. Eggs always do this to me. Like it comes up with an answer that is not the answer. It's a (laughs) justification, a rationalization, an explanation and that was obviously that that's I've been doing this for so long now. This that was a, an awe-inspiring experience for me to think. No way. Wait, I, I bet we're all. <laughs> I bet we're doing that all the time for everything. And whether or not we, if we have the right answer, maybe the, sometimes we have the right answer. We're telling the truth to ourselves and other people, and sometimes we're not. And when I discovered, if you have people whose emotions are t- tuned way down. Uh, and you ask them to like choose this pen or the other, or choose this choose a breakfast cereal. This becomes a intense flowchart experience that may burn them out. Yeah. Um, yep. You need the emotion to commit to the to the action, the behavior, the thought. Yeah. Uh, all that is just sort of a it's a very meta moment for me to feel like these are the things that gave me awe. That you wrote a book about awe itself. So let's talk about awe. I love that etymologically you talk about this, that it almost just has an onomatopoeia thing going on because yeah. the old, the old Norse was like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> and the old English was, Oh, <laughs> like, but, but they're trying to, if I, if I, if I'm understanding what you wrote correctly, they're expressing something more along the lines of fear and dread. And yeah. there's a, I love the, that the concept and the word that attempts to describe it, to communicate it, co-evolve with each other in this like twisty braid thing as they get to the modern era it why would this start as something where these these ancient peoples were said they were having an emotion that's very similar maybe the same emotion but they were trying using it to express something more like fear or dread or hmm what do you think what's going on there what a what a an incredible question and thanks for uh picking that up yeah you know words change in their connotations and denotations with history 
and all traces back to these uh, old Norse and old English terms from the 8th and ninth centuries, which were about fear and dread. And, and I think that they were words that were marking the core meaning of awe, which is, man, that is vast and mysterious. And, but in that 8th and ninth century, there was a lot of violence. You know, there were plagues and deaths and you know, really tremendous warfare. So what was vast and mysterious at that time was was death and disease oh, yeah. and and you're watching children die all their mythologies like the norse mythology is there's a reason why it's so rad and great for movies and video games because you know, it's <laughs> horrifying <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and so all kind of intermingled and was intertwined with horror which is a really different emotion and then over time you know we've become less violent there's less death we live longer we don't die in childbirth children live so a lot of the horrors have been taken out of what's vast and mysterious. And awe in our work, time and time again, has become, despite the connotations, you ask people and it's like, it is kind of a positive experience of wonder and bliss and, you know, curiosity and feeling uh, enthusiastic about discovering the new. So, so you know, emotions... We don't have a lot of great data on this. This is really the realm of historians or, or maybe people study, but it, emotions change, change in their meaning and awe has. I find this, that I, I know I'm nerding out on something that maybe maybe you're, you want to get to something else, but this is something I, 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 I cannot get enough of this. I'm, my next book is about the, the history of the, of the word and the idea of genius over the years. Nice. Um, and so this is all, something I've always loved, which was how how the idea and the word that maps onto it affect each other and then and what it seems to be true about awe to me is this this emotional state that probably has uh, a lot of evolutionary inputs to to encourage a certain states of mind cognitions behaviors all this stuff comes out of oh that's bigger than me that's something that i need to think about i need there's some sort of dopamine learning response is starting to get kick it all this thing then as we change as a species, as we have less fear, less uh, murder, um, less disease and war, and uh, and we can set, we, we can stay inside during the blizzard. Exactly. On it's like a it we get to evolve into a space where we get to experience a new form of this ancient thing. Yeah, I'm excited by the idea that awe can evolve, that an emotional state can evolve with us. Thanks to this biopsychosocial push into, oh, we now in this current era get to experience something wondrous and new, which is a form of awe that was uh, limited to those before us. And I am I in the right space? Is this something that you're thinking about? (laughs) I think you're raising one of the deepest questions about experience more generally, and then awe being an emotion which is defined in terms of the experience of vast mysteries about in the world. Uh, we can look at it historically, and you'd have to analyze historical texts and find, like you and I have been conversing, like, man, it used to be about horror, and today it's got this more positive valence. But, you know, David, you can look at it for the individual, right? And our emotions change in their their meanings in our individual lives. And you think mm. about what happens to people when they meditate, when they have a really profound spiritual experience. Maybe they're out backpacking and they feel close to the divine, or they take psychedelics, um, right? And the, I, the possibility that you're pointing to is that we knock out the threat and worry 
and anxiety and these experiences. And suddenly the mind opens up to that space you talked about of, wow, vast mysteries, like Lao Tzu says, our life is about one mystery unfolding into the next. And we embrace them, right? And I think that's one of the things I hope the new, the next generation of studies of awe gets to, which is I have a big experience of awe at a concert or uh, in watching someone bor be born, and that opens my mind to this this enduring state of of wonder. It's it's a great prospect for this field to think about that. Yeah, I I love that it still has that twinge of fear in it just a little bit. Like like I I've definitely stood before a mountain or uh, or at a concert or had a life experience that really shook me. Uh, I I I went to see Interstellar at an IMAX theater on mushrooms. <laughs> and the 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 uh, the the big black hole sequence, which oh, was no. <laughs> which was artistically like intended to generate a sense of awe, wonder, and with a twinge of fear, did that for sure for me. And I remember, but I remember the the fear of breaking through, which is often happens. Where oh yeah, you you have that. Uh, uh, and then you smile to yourself and settle into a calm, and you go. Ah. Wow. <laughs> and then you do the, you have the woe. Yeah. What, what you've given me with your work, this book is, I think I used to think of this as the moment of just, you kind of got overwhelmed and then you have to back propagate what overwhelmed me. And it, maybe it felt good. Maybe it felt bad, but separating it out categorically as no, there's probably a good reason for this. And look at all the things it does to the body. That's new to me. I want to talk about that. First of all, before I get into it, how does one study awe scientifically? Like that, I know we 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 touched on it, but how do you even start? Yeah, you know, it's so funny because I mean, not only were we late to the game in studying emotion scientifically, as we've been talking about, we we're even later to the game to study the positive emotions and then awe, which really has gained momentum, I think, in the last ten years as a scientific topic. Um, you know. Uh, how do you study all scientifically? And people, I think, I think there's this sense out in the scholarly traditions that the awe, the numinous, the mystical, you just can't touch it with science, but you can, you know? And so what we do is you measure people's brains, you measure vocalization patterns. Oh, you look at people's faces. They look up and wondrous, right? You measure uh, goosebumps, which are fascinating little tingly responses going up your back and into your scalp that make you feel like you're merging with people. You measure tears. People tear up during experiences of awe, right? Or, or merging with community. I measure the vagus nerve, this big bundle of nerves in your chest that slows down heart rate and helps with, you know, orienting the body to connect to others. So it turns out, ironically, Awe is one of the easiest emotions to measure. <laughs> and then, you know, importantly, David, and I think to orient the conversation, the other thing that we did really was uh, inspired by William James and his varieties of religious experience is you gather story. You know, we got stories of awe from 26 countries to avoid the weird problem you cited. Radically different countries. We just said, what's a vast mist an experience of a vast mystery you've had? And Man, those really oriented us to like people feel awe about moral beauty, collective movement, nature, spirituality, music, art, life and death. So we can do it. We can study awe. It can be studied. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, 
Uh, we haven't even defined it. I guess I was assuming people would have their own definition. Uh, I have your definition from the book in front of me, but I would like to hear you if you have something on just on the tip of your tongue. As as who the person I consider until you tell me there's somebody else, the world's leading expert on this on this very topic. What is awe? What is the definition of it? Awe is the feeling you have when you encounter vast mysteries that you can't make sense of with your current knowledge. And then it sets in motion some interesting things. You become filled with wonder. I got to figure this out, right? Uh, Newton and Descartes, when they saw rainbows, they freaked out. They're awestruck. And they're like, how, how in the world does light bend through water and produce a rainbow? You know, they're like, ah, you know, uh, so it produces wonder. And then what I call saintly tendencies in the spirit of William James, that was his phrase that all kind of makes us want to serve groups or collectives, but it's the feeling you have when you encounter vast mysteries that you can't make sense of with your current knowledge. So it's related to surprise. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, it certainly is, uh, whatever your error detection system, your, uh, your, uh, your, I, this, uh, the, uh, your, if then statements have been, uh, questioned by something you've experienced. Definitely. And so there's that moment of you seize up and I should probably stop and learn so that I, this could be more predictable, but it goes, it's not just simple surprise. As you just noted, all, uh, we, you know, there's a reason we call it all struck because that's what it does feel like. It feels like the hand of God has come down and grabbed the back of my head and twisted it toward the thing and said, no, pay attention. This is very important. You should feel this S slow down and feel this. So I mean, do you have any hypotheses as to why would this be useful for a, an organism, for a primate? What would it be useful for a species to develop this sensation in the presence of something very mysterious, very vast and bigger than them. Well, I, you know, and that's the, the deep question in the book. And, and, um, and I think, you know, um, I offer one answer and it's a great question, David, you know, um, awe in contrast to surprise, which is not about vast things. It's about unexpected things that you can kind of quickly make sense of. Awe is still mystery, mysterious and vast. And you're like, Wow, I felt like uh, somebody who just passed away was actually sitting next to me. Or look at that electrical storm coming at me uh, in the High Sierras, which just happened to my daughter Natalie and me. Um, why do we have this emotion? I, you know, when we survey what awe does to the mind in different studies, and then think about what we feel awe for, which is nature and moral beauty and collectives and patterns of music and visual designs and ideas, um, what I arrive at is the idea that um, awe helps the individual find a relationship to the important systems of life, right? We survive by being part of social collectives. And awe experiences have this interesting sense. You know, we study people in nature by Yosemite, and we ask them, like, you know, draw your social network, and they draw this really complicated system they're part of. Awe makes us aware of the social systems we're part of. It brings into sharp relief the ecosystems we're part of as indigenous philosophies. And uh, Dr. Yuria Salidwin's been writing about this of ecological belonging, that we develop these deep ideas that Emerson wrote about of like, I am part of an ecosystem, right? And so though that system's view of life 
his court of science and all kinds of different traditions. And awe makes us aware of how we're part of these bigger things, like you said, and that helps us survive. We are better socially with that awareness. We are better in terms of our environment. We're better culturally, right? If we know I'm part of this cultural history or this musical tradition. So, so it's a, it's, that's the, the, it, the answer to why all. It feels like it, it turns the volume down on, on some sort of selfish uh, it does. individuality. Yeah. And then it turns the volume up on a group identity or a sense that I uh, am part of a collective. I find it fascinating that if I stand before a tornado or a thunderstorm or a hurricane or a cathedral or a mountain, I might also come away with that feeling. What are your studies that you talked about? Uh, one of the studies you talked about the book, having people draw their, their image and then when they, after they have an awe experience, the image is that they draw for that is much tinier or they are, or two different groups will draw the images. What's the, tell me a little bit about that study. I found that amazing. Evolutionary psychologists, uh, game theoreticians, economic modelers, and so forth have talked about kind of the problem of self-interest or the cooperation problem. It's fundamental to society to balance self-interest with serving the group and others. And humans are, are complex in that. Uh, calculation, but we're pretty good at it. And awe fast tracks us to that, right? It, like you said, it really, it short circuits, it diminishes self and the voice of the self and ego and self-interest. One of our studies, we've got a bunch of studies on this. You know, you can take people to Yosemite, you, you know, you have them draw themselves and they draw these tiny little figures, you know, and they, and we ask like, sign your name and, and, or write me and they write me and it's really small compared to <laughs> appropriate control conditions. We do that around trees and in laboratory studies. But again, what's striking about that is like, you're looking at nature and granite and suddenly your whole self is changing, uh, across countries when you're meditating, when you take psychedelics, when you feel awe, um, it deactivates the default mode network in Japan and Holland and so forth. And that's where self-representation is really active. It's quieting down. So it tells us, like a lot of people believe, like William James and some of the psychedelic writers, that, you know, awe is this sort of transcendent feeling is, is a pathway by which music and drugs and meditation and nature get us to this this capacity to fold into social collective to be part of something bigger than the self. I love the I love the like the the image in my mind of if you're if you're terrified you run away you know if it's Godzilla you're you know there's a moment of awe and then you and then you're like well this is Norse awe I got to get out of here uh, <laughs> but the, but there's the other there's you know this this bl- this blossoming form that we that we're so privileged to have as as mo- as modern humans like it's this it's like that's the other thing it's like gather around like i need to tell i need to tell everybody to come look at this come come outside take a look like that feeling of like exactly i i I, one of my my knee-jerk feelings is i want others to participate in this with me isn't that Um, amazing that that structure is in your mind that is activated by different sources of awe you know And, and if you're alone you're going to want to paint this. You're going to want to write a song about it. You're going to want to write an essay about it. Whatever your expressive uh, avenue is, like, and you talk about that in the book. We have cultural archives of people's experiences. Well, in fact, that is what a lot of the history of art, whether it's in music or poetry or plays or books, a lot of it is the history of people who have been struck by awe and need to tell you about it. They need to bring other other people in on it. I think that's neat. 
Thank you. Well, you know, it was, it was such a, a fascinating discovery to dig into this book and read all the different scholarly traditions. Mystical writing for centuries is about awe, right? Psychedelic writings is about awe. Nature writings, uh, the patterns you see in Mesoamerican cultures visually, it's like, man, that is, that makes me feel awe. So culture is archiving these experiences to bring us together, like you said. And I'll just note, you know, the, just the profound mysteries here. Uh, David, one of my favorite things to do when talking about awe is to ask people, and you could offer your own answer, like, what's a musical experience that you just felt like you figured out life? You know the point of life, right? You're like, I know the point of life. That's a really good one. Uh, I've had a couple like that. I think uh, Oats in the Water by Ben Howard. Okay. The song, I don't know why it hit me so hard, but that song hit me in a way where I had to stop my vehicle, pull over yeah. in the parking lot and just yeah. let it happen to me. Yep. And I don't know if my interpretation of the lyrics or the, or the songwriter's intent, but what I felt from that was I felt a real leveling up into a space of, Oh, I didn't have an emotional vocabulary for the, this, the, for this feeling that I'm currently experiencing, but now I do. Ever since then, I don't just consider that a good song. It's a sacred Exactly. To me. Exactly. Uh, it's it's untouch it's untouchable to me, you know. Which is what sacred is, is you know, you can't you can't put a physical value to it. But but when I ask people that and, and the narratives are often like what you described, it's like they pull out their own this this idiosyncratic piece of music and maybe country and western or talking heads or you know, what whatever it is, hip hop and but they they often will tear up and they'll say, you know, this taught me about where I belong in life. Mm -hmm. And, yes. and that to me is so mysterious that patterns of sound waves move into your brain. And the next thing you know, you're crying and hugging somebody and, and that's all right. That's what all does is it connects you to things larger than the self. Yeah. I, th I feel, I feel that so strongly with like, uh, like I want to feel, I hope that there is a conduit between me and, and the, the songwriter. And this was part of what, this person was experiencing so strongly that it got communicated and then now it's it's cascading it's reverberating the it's like when i go if you uh, when you're in a museum or something and you see like a jackson pollock painting and you think to yourself on one level you're like what is this it's just what, it's like 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 i i think i could pull this off but then i see people <laughs> I see people who do attempt to pull that off yeah. and it doesn't do that. It yeah. doesn't give me any, it doesn't do anything to me or, or, or I can feel how it's not quite there. Um, whether it's Rothko or, or any of the other, you know, abstract painters. And it's because I get the sense that uh, the painting is almost irrelevant. It is what I'm experiencing is the urge to paint this painting. The emotional state of the artist is what wow. is, is the, what's, what's important here. And that's what's being communicated. And the end result of it, what came out on, on the canvas, is, is it's almost not even worth our, our, our attention as far as like... And to me, that feels very psychologically similar to the difference between uh, feeling and then the rationalization of the feeling, right? The rationalization of the feeling is the, is, is the argument that people make like, my kid could paint that. No, no, you're rationalizing something that is, that's not the point, dude. The feeling that led to this moment is what you're what will come out of this if you if you let it wash over you. And I think there are certain songs that will mm. that just insist upon it and you're in the right place at the right time in your life where that song hits you in that way and the song is irrelevant. Like you could if I play it on a guitar for you right now it would, it's not going to be the same thing as what well, that time I was in that car in that parking lot when it just exactly right. over. 
<laughs> and, you know, I really found inspiration in this philosopher, Susan Langer, feeling informed, 50s. And like she said, arts are about giving us these feelings, these representations that are about the significant themes of life, right? And when we're moved to awe by a visual painting or a design or a chant or a piece of music, it's saying to you, and we feel it, you know, like this is this is the the set of ideas and and community members that you should be part of you know and and what and it just knocks people out sometimes you know when i first heard punk rock i was just like ah oh, i get it yeah it's, <laughs> this it's is that, i have it, to, you know this it's is like an I invitation care. to step into a, a bigger world exactly and, and the, the extension of that hand is the is the that one particular art piece I can't get enough of that. I only really have a few, a little, a few minutes left. I know you have a heart out. I, you did this. You, you mentioned earlier. You talked to. Uh, you had. You did this research. You had uh, twenty six hundred narratives of awe across twenty languages, and all these different cultures, all these different people, and you were able to categorize it into eight categories of all of that. Eight wonders. Uh, uh, I wanted to talk about just one of these. The there's collective effervescence. We've mentioned this uh, nature, music, visual design. There's something along the lines of spirituality and re- religiosity, mystical life and death, uh, and epiphanies. Uh, epiphanies are my favorite. Of but the I like all of these. We talk about moral beauty. This what an what an odd phrase. I, I what is moral beauty? Yeah, you know, moral beauty. I think Immanuel Kant named it as such. Is moral beauty is the property of an individual who, uh, or an individual who inspires us uh, to uh, to be better, to be virtuous, if you will. Uh, it happens all the time. Um, uh, and we encoding these narratives from 26 different countries, you know, as distinct as Brazil and China and, you know, India and Japan and US and Poland, et cetera. Moral beauty boils down to a couple of themes um, when people are really courageous, you know, standing up to a racist or a bully, when people are really kind and they share things. We respond to sharing images and acts of sharing very profoundly. When people overcome personal obstacles, you know, and this is the stuff of literature and myths, right? Uh, I remember, uh, you know, a couple of stories of moms, I think from Ireland and uh, Australia, if like their, their kids were born with certain, you know, physical conditions and then they overcame them and, and danced, uh, overcame another condition and performed musically. So kindness, courage, overcoming obstacles are the acts that lead us to feel inspired by people's moral beauty and to awe, you know, to a sense of humans have remarkable good in them. Um, and it's interesting, you know, we, we lose sight of that. But, you know, Jonah Berger at Penn has done a lot of work uh, showing like what we really like to share with other people in terms of content and tell stories is lots of good stuff about people, the amazing things they'll do, right? So, yeah, humans are definitely capable of evil, no doubt. <laughs> There's a lot of evidence of that and greed. But we also have a lot of courage and kindness and, and overcoming that are the properties of moral beauty. Mm-hmm.
I was very moved by the story about your brother. Uh, well, and thank you for sharing it. That's uh, it's not something you would you. It's something I could totally understand leaving out, even if it was something that inspired this work, inspired this book. I could I could totally understand saying, well, that's for me and not for you. Uh, but you included in the book, and and it was one of those. I'm very happy we started here, sort of things, and I really appreciate it. So I thank you mm. for that. Mm. If you could share whatever you'd like to about how this was something that helped inspire the work that you're doing and that that resulted in this book and whatever else comes next. Yeah, thank you, David. Um, yeah, it was profound. Um, my brother Rolf was one is was one year younger than me or is one year younger than me. Um, we had a wild childhood of awe. You know, we grew up in the Laurel Canyon in the '60s and had wild parents and then lived in the wilds of the Sierras and just like, just did wild stuff. And he was my brother uh, and and he was in some sense, my source of moral beauty. And, um, and then he got colon cancer at 53, I think, and then died horribly uh, tough at 55. Um, and the first thing, you know, is that, uh, and we discovered this in those narratives from 26 cultures that, Watching people die is, is transcendent and you, and it poses metaphysical questions. What is life? Who is that person? Why do I feel them here? Um, you know, it's, and that emerged in our science. Uh, and it was filled with wonder to watch my brother leave this earth, which I write about in the book, I think in the introduction. Um, and then what happened to me, David, is that, um, I felt a little bit of awe in the rituals around saying goodbye to him, which is very common around the world. And then I became aweless. I, I was so grief stricken, you know, uh, I couldn't sleep. My body was overheated, panic attacks, hallucinating. I thought I saw him in places. I felt his hand. I was really, he was sort of core to my sense of family. And this happens a lot when people watch really close loved ones die as they become very disorganized. Um, and, you know, frankly, David, I was, you know, the science was coming along and I was like, I, you know, I just got to write this book, man. I got to go find awe, you know, and I went to, I heard music I didn't understand. I went into the mountains, you know, deep, went to retreats in India, kind of meditation, spiritual retreats. You know, I got to interview people. I was like, I got to find my way in life. Uh, and I went in search of awe. Uh, and it changed my life. You know, it really, and I think that we're learning scientifically with grief, you can grow. It's, it's the ultimate awe experience. It's vast. It's mysterious. It destabilizes you. It rearranges your view of the world. Without my brother around, the world was totally, it, it just made no sense for a while. And I reconstructed it by going after awe. And in this time, you know, post-pandemic, depression's risen, anxiety's risen, uh, teenagers around the, a lot of the world are too anxious. I'm, I am like, go find awe, man. Go after mysteries. Go after things you don't understand. Wander around. Um, and it, it really, and, and I learned, and it changed my view of death. It changed my view of people. You know, I still feel my brother Rolf with me, um, but, you know, it, it just was this privilege to kind of 
have that narrative run throughout the book and and then think about my life with him and you know a psychedelic trip we took in mexico and how it made it helped us make sense of our crazy family um it was a great exercise i would encourage many to do mm-hmm. thank you thank you dude That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McRaney. You can follow me on Twitter, as long as it's still a thing, at David McRaney. You can follow this podcast, at Not Smart Blog. For links to everything that we talked about, including all this research, the book, and other sources, you can go to youarenotsosmart.com. There's also links there to every previous episode. And all those links will be in the notes inside your podcast player. You'll also find a link there to the homepage for How Minds Change, which is my latest book. I am going to go back on the road in a couple of weeks to do more lectures. If you'd like me to do a lecture about How Minds Change for your organization or your academic institution, just send me an email. You will also find a link to my new newsletter. I just put out a new, very long article about the introspection illusion. That link is in the show notes as well. For all the past episodes, you can subscribe at Stitcher and SoundCloud and Spotify and Amazon and Audible and iTunes. And you can also just go to youarenotsosmart.com. And also, the show is on Facebook at slash youarenotsosmart. If you'd like to support this operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription, and other features, go to patreon.com slash youarenotsosmart. I just posted an exclusive one-hour interview with Hank Green over at Patreon. It is just for patrons. And uh, it's video. It's a video of us talking about how he makes things and his advice for other people who might like to also make things. Pitching in at any amount will get you the show ad-free and also get you things like those videos. But the higher amounts will get you posters and t-shirts and signed books and other stuff that's coming soon. The opening music, that is Clash by Caravan Palace. And if you really, really, really want to support the show, just uh, tell everybody you know about it. If any episode really landed for you, share that one and check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.